because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. This is week two of the return of Power Hour. I hope you enjoyed the last episode. If you've heard it, if not, go back and listen to it. At least many of the listeners wrote very nice notes and said they enjoyed it. This week's theme is going to be, shouldn't be a big surprise if you are uh, listening near when this is, is coming out, which is Wednesday, March 18th. We're talking about what's often called the coronavirus or COVID-19, and we're going to talk about it and, in particular, its relationship to energy. Now, my goal today is to share four ideas with you about COVID-19 that you probably haven't heard and you probably won't hear anywhere else, but I think these ideas are important. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just give you the ideas first, and then I might even add in a fifth that's even more controversial than these, but I want to give these to you first, and then we're going to jump in and I'll I'll bring on my co-hosts in a minute, and they will join me in discussing these two. But the, the ideas at a high level are, idea number one is the increasingly prevalent COVID-19 policy of indefinite universal isolation is immoral and un-American. And I'll, I'll unpack that, but all three elements of those are important. Indefinite universal isolation. Idea number two is going to be that climate change obsession prevented us from paying attention to real threats like coronavirus, or I'll actually put it as climate change fixation, prevented us from paying attention to real threats like coronavirus. Number three is a Green New Deal would be fatal in the fight against coronavirus. And number four is our biggest ally in the fight. Oh, actually, that's 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 going to be a corollary. So that's sort of idea three A. Our biggest ally in the fight against coronavirus is the fossil fuel industry. And then the final idea is that the corona recession that we're starting is a mild preview of the Green New Deal. So you're not going to get anything uncontroversial today, but I think all of these ideas are very, very important for going forward at, at this point where there's just a ton of confusion and a ton of fear and a ton of suffering in a way that's most consistent with human flourishing. This is not this is not a time of increasing human flourishing, and there's a lot to be worried about in terms of the wrong policy. So I wanted to share my perspective and bring uh, the Center for Industrial Progress team on the call. So I'll welcome from uh, Pennsylvania, Don Watkins. Hey, Don. Hey, Alex. And from Germany, Stefan Henna. Hey, Stefan. Hey, good to be back. Good to have you. So I'm going to first start out with this idea, and I, I haven't run all these things by you guys, so I'll, I'll, you know, you can jump in at any point, but this idea that the, the COVID-19 policy of indefinite universal isolation is immoral and un-American. So I want to start out uh, by saying the following, that I absolutely believe we should be very concerned about COVID-19, and in particular because it's very good at human, in the bad sense, at human-to-human transmission. Now, I think there's a lot of unknown about how good it is, but there's a lot of evidence that it's it's quite good and that's a that's a very uh it's an undesirable attribute attribute for a virus to have. Now, it's not airborne in the technical sense, and that's going to be important. It's not something that can just be that you can just pass easily to somebody 600 feet away. And so that has implications for what uh policy should be. It's not like I believe measles has that kind of 
has that kind of quality, but it is something that's a a real concern that I think government has a certain role in. And uh, but both with government and individuals, we need to think about how do we deal with this in a way that's consistent with human flourishing. And then part of that, and the part I want to focus on today, is people being free to pursue their livelihoods. And this is something that I've I've noticed, and it's been really upsetting, that when people are making their personal and corporate and certainly political policies about this, the whole focus is how do we slow the rate of spread of this virus, which is itself, that's obviously an important consideration, but there's very little focus on how do we protect people's right to pursue their their livelihoods. And what we've seen is the 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 implicit policy that's being embraced increasingly is what I'm calling indefinite universal isolation. So I want to break that down because all the points of that are important. So isolation, I'll start with isolation, is the idea that people are being isolated from one another. It's often called social distancing. I think isolation captures more uh, the negative of it. And so that's that's one element of it. And all things being equal, when there's contagious diseases around, you know, one wants to be more isolated to protect oneself from it. So there's that element. But then there's the universal element of it, which, which I want to come back to and, and really challenge, which is that everyone should be doing this. And this is increasingly the policy if you look at, you know, closing down schools and closing down all kinds of workplaces. And, you know, it's, it's the idea that everybody should be doing this. And then finally, there's indefinite, and this is a really important aspect of it, that there's no clear timeline on how long this is going to last. Sometimes there will be a specific date on something, but there's no overall plan of how long, you know, how, how long this will uh, be. And the, the first thing to say about this indefinite universal isolation is that it is drastically harming the livelihood of, I mean, conservatively tens of millions of Americans, I would really say most, the vast majority of the country. And it's harming them. And at the same time, they themselves are under no significant risk from COVID-19. So I'm not yet saying what the policy should be, but I just think that's a very important fact that it is this policy is drastically harming the livelihood of, of tens of millions and really most of the country. And most people are under no significant risk from it. So the the significant risk is for what they'll call vulnerable, the vulnerable, which is, you know, the elderly, and then people who are what's called uh, immunocompromised. Uh, and so I'll just give you an example of the harm of this, and then I'll talk about the justice of it. So my, uh, my girlfriend works as a therapist for kids with autism. And we are being told that, well, you should avoid any kind of interaction, like you want to maximize your social distancing. And so she works with clients, so she'll go to the the homes of clients, and she'll be around the parents and around the kids. And the kids need, like, they need in-person therapy. So if she's working with a kid and, you know, he's just learning some reading skills and verbal skills, it's like that, it will permanently negatively affect him if she's not there, you know, for a month or two months. And what she's being told is, hey, you shouldn't be around uh, this kid at all, and we're not sure how much. And so that's obviously very affected, affects her livelihood because she makes 
money, largely from clients paying her to help, you know, to give this great value to uh, kids with autism who, whose lives she can vastly improve. So it's, it's her livelihood is being uh, attacked. And then the livelihood of the kid is being attacked, even though there is no, like, no real threat uh, to either of them. There are many, many things that are more threatening. I mean, she's much more threatened by just driving over there than this thing. And so this this should really give us pause that we are restricting the livelihood of really hundreds of millions of people who themselves are not under uh, threat. And we're also, it's not that they are, it's not that they are spewing something that is truly airborne in the sense is like impossibly contagious where nobody can be isolated from it. So I think the the basic moral thing is as much as possible, at least over the long term, if it's a long term thing, we want individuals to engage in selective isolation. I think there are a couple of criteria here, but not universal isolation, but more selective isolation based on one is their vulnerability. So if you're super vulnerable to this, and we're going to talk about some of the problems largely created by government of lack of testing and then lack of of expected lack of treatment facilities. But whatever the situation is, yeah, you want to engage in in selective isolation. And I think it's people should be willing to take fairly extreme measures and with loved ones. We should be, I mean, Think of someone in particular, in my case, I'm very close with who's in that age group. And like, we should be willing to take pretty extreme measures in terms of supporting them and cordoning them off. And isolation does not mean everybody's quarantined on some island and they're each getting it. No, no, you, you isolate them from each other uh, as well. Or at least, you know, you if, if they want to, you make it as as easy as possible. So the key the key criterion has to be level of vulnerability that should drive selective isolation. But the other thing that should drive selective isolation is how affordable is it for you to isolate? And this will vary from person to person vastly. So for example, in Silicon Valley, you have many people advocating indefinite universal isolation. And they themselves are people who work at software companies. They're often, I don't want to make caricatures, but they're often introverted. They don't necessarily need to feel the need to be around that many people. I'm somewhat like this uh, myself in terms of my writing work and whatnot. So if if you can easily afford it, then there's a real case for um, for isolating yourself to a certain degree, particularly if there's a, a reasonable time horizon with it. And then there are also, you know, part of you can isolate yourself in a in a less social sense, but you can just take certain kinds of precautions that are good for your health anyway, such as because even though it's not deadly to you, the COVID-19, it's, it's still it can be a real pain if you get it. So things like washing hands and um you know, and not coughing in the air and that kind of thing. And the you know, these kinds of things can be incredibly um just yeah, they can help dramatically slow uh, transmission. But it's notice that both of these are individuals taking responsibility and doing things that are consistent with their livelihoods. But what we're, what you know what my girlfriend is being told to do, and what most of us are being told to do, is really shut down your livelihood for something that's not uh, really threatening to you now. I want to talk about this issue of indefinite because there are there there you know there's a certain threshold at which 
it may need to be universal, or I don't think universal, but at least in certain locations. But if that's the case, there are a couple of criteria that need to be followed. So one is that the government should give a really clear explanation of why universal is is necessary. And I think in this case, some of the dynamics are one is that testing got totally screwed up. So it's just so hard to know what to do because you don't know how to, we don't know, we have no idea how many people have this. And I don't think we know that anywhere. So the state of testing is really bad. And there were definite screw ups there uh, by government. And then the other thing is, um, you know, lack of some of these basic elements of treatment like face masks and whatnot. So there's just some really terrible stuff going on where medical workers are being exploited and at risk and sometimes dying because they're being exposed to such huge loads of this virus. And th- you know, that's that's really bad. And if, if there's something where the government... So if there's like a specific time-limited circumstance, then then that's reasonable if the government can really explain how it applies to us and it can really give a reasonable time frame of it. But I think crucial to this is government needs to acknowledge where it made mistakes. And I'm not talking about, you know, I don't want to talk about parties or individual personalities, but in terms of the testing and the supplies, we have a, for better or worse, and I believe worse, we have a largely government controlled healthcare system and certainly where government plays a massive role in approving or not approving things, including tests for COVID-19. So, there has to be if if they're asking for this kind of major setback, then there needs to be a really clear reason why a a an explanation of what went wrong, what they did wrong, and then a really clear uh, time horizon. And with all of this, there just needs to be an acknowledgement that it is so crucial for people to be free to pursue their livelihoods and and their lives. And what we're what we're seeing is just that that is on such the back burner and. You, as a result, you just meet so many people who are being negatively affected by this, and you know, just everywhere you go, at least in my experience. What have you guys found in terms of just how people are being affected by the, you know, the indefinite universal isolation policies? I mean, it's definitely varied at this point. I think, you know, I have everything from friends who are, you know, in industries that are actually benefiting. Uh, from this economically, just in the sense of there's higher demand for certain kinds of medical services, set aside the people who are actually in the front lines in that industry, which is a different scenario, um, down to people who, you know, they do like wedding photography and things like that, and they have zero money. And, you know, in some cases don't have any savings. But I think the one thing that has been universal across all of the people I've spoken to is exactly what you're talking about, which is the or part of what you're talking about, which is the psychological costs of not knowing when life will return to normal and of how bad things could get just on an economic level if this goes on further and further. Stefan, what about you? Well, I live in Germany, so my situation is a little bit different. But um, so in general, the reaction by the government has been somewhat confused. And I've uh, seen... Uh, or there are so, uh, there's something like a, a restaurant ban, but only after six p.m. because you know the food industry is essential essential, but uh, like after six p.m. <laughs> uh, the virus apparently appears like a vampire. There have been impacts in particular branches where they need you know as you mentioned you know human contact like face to face contact. 
um, other branches, you know, like the the online gaming platform Steam uh, uh, showed record player numbers uh, because uh, lot, lots of people globally have been locked down and so they, they make more money now than they usually do. But it's, uh, yeah, so it's very selective. It's often con confusing and it's it strikes me as totally not sustainable because if you take it seriously, you don't know who is infected because the testing has been lacking then you have to lock down everything. But that's not sustainable because a lot of people need to do work because if we just stop working for three months, all of us will be dead because nothing is produced and nothing can be consumed. So it's uh, it's really very confusing. And I, I think a lot of this has to do with, you know, that the government coordinates this and politicians arbitrarily shut down things because they don't want to be responsible if something happens. And on the other hand, they didn't prepare the government healthcare system, and, and in Germany it's even more so than in the United States, uh, they didn't prepare for the situation in any meaningful sense, so they have no information to work with. So it's it's sort of a, a mixed bag of, you know, half measures. And yeah, a lot of people will be impacted, and it's somewhat arbitrary. I'm actually going to jump into my bonus idea of the day that I think is the most controversial, at least maybe to listeners of this program, but it, it fits in right now. And the reason it's controversial is because it challenges something that I'll bet many of you think is a good idea, or at least might feel to some extent is a good idea, which is the right to healthcare, the idea that healthcare is right. And so my my second idea, or my bonus idea rather, is that the corona crackdown, this tyrannical behavior, this you know, indefinite universal isolation, illustrates the tyrannical nature of the, quote, right to health care. So the, my view of health, so health care is an aspect of health. My view of health is health is a responsibility. So it's, it's a responsibility. Individuals, and so we have a right, we have a right to the pursuit of health care, including to produce different forms of health care, whether medical care, uh, rather uh, medicines, medical services, so to produce them, and, and of course to trade uh, with others who produce them. But fundamentally, health is a responsibility, and we should be free to pursue it and produce it, um, but it's our right. We have a right to be free to pursue and produce it. We don't have a right uh, to it. Now, the, the prevalent view is that we have a right to health care, and I want to emphasize that if we have a right to healthcare, a right is something that the government enforces coercively, ultimately at the point of a gun or some other decisive form of force. And so if, if something is a right, that means the government gets to define what it is and control how it is uh, pursued. So the government, if we have a right to healthcare, the government gets to decide what is and is not healthcare. And it also gets to control us in the pursuit of that, because it's it's made it its job to give us what it considers healthcare, so then it gets to do what it wants to us to uh, give us healthcare. So it really means the right to healthcare means the government has the right to control us in any way it wishes to provide what it considers healthcare. And I discussed this at some length, actually. I'd recommend there's a, a show I did with Yaron Brook, the former CEO of the Ayn Rand Institute, now the chairman of the Ayn Rand Institute, my former boss in a past life. And if you look up, well, I guess we can include this in the links, but 
It's uh, if you just YouTube Alex Epstein, Yaron Brook, Y-A-R-O-N space B-R-O-O-K and Corona, this will definitely come up first unless uh, YouTube has suppressed it. So, yeah, check that out. So we discuss more about this uh, this issue. But so here I want to emphasize a particular aspect of what it means to have what we're seeing with what it means to have the right to health care, which is that the government and not only gets to control, you know, how doctors behave and how they bill and what things should be covered under insurance and on all sorts and who gets who gets to be a nurse and who doesn't all these different things. It also gets to control us when it gets to control us even more when it screws up. So what we see now is, I believe, increasing tyrannical control, largely to make up for the government's own incompetence. So I told you some of you guys uh, weren't going to like this, but look at look at the two main reasons government is now demanding indefinite universal isolation. They'll often call it extreme social distancing, but the, there are two main reasons. There may be more, but here are two of them. So one is that our government-controlled healthcare system has failed to develop proper COVID-19 tests. I don't think that can really be disputed, that there were major failures involved here, and the government is in charge of uh, of testing. So one thing is the system has failed. to it's, So it has failed to develop proper tests. And then the idea is, well, we need to crack down because we have no idea who has this, and we have to be universal because you can't be selective because no one knows. I think there are problems with that argument because it's not anywhere near as contagious as measles. But nevertheless, that is a real consideration that we don't have tests. And so that makes policy a lot harder. And then the second one is that our government controlled health care system allegedly will fail. So it has failed on the tests and allegedly will fail to scale health care to the levels needed uh, that, that we would need if we were just free to practice voluntary and selective isolation. And you can see this in all the different graphs about flattening the curve. There's, I mean, if you must, I'm sure people have heard of this, but if you just look up flattening the curve, you'll see there's the idea that if you, if you leave people free or if people don't distance or isolate themselves enough, then the, then the need for healthcare will be very concentrated in time and it will go above the system's resources. And then, it'll be terrible, including like some of the stuff we've seen in Italy with like doctors being overworked and dying and this really terrible stuff. But part of, part of that is saying, well, there's a real question of, well, why is that line as low as it is? Why can't it go up rapidly? And we've seen at least many government-related failures where the ability to scale treatment is related. There's all just all kinds of issues of us not being prepared. And we do have a government-controlled healthcare system. We do not have at all a free market healthcare system. We have pockets of freedom, but it's overwhelmingly a government-controlled healthcare system. So essentially, people are saying, yeah, we've failed. The government-controlled healthcare system has failed to develop proper tests and it will fail to scale. Therefore, we get to force indefinite universal isolation on you. Now, they're not putting it that way, but this is what it amounts to. They're saying, yeah, there's, we can't control this problem that we've taken responsibility for, and we've prohibited you in all sorts of ways from taking responsibility. So now we get to, in effect, do whatever we want. And it's really like, we get to keep you in your house. We get to lock you down. There's no right to assemble. I mean, the, where, what happened to the Constitution? It's just, it's just there's almost not a, not a thought. So I just think it's really worth reflecting on this idea that it's moral and desirable to have rights 
to specific products and services, that always means the government gets to define what they are and it gets to control you in its pursuit. And so it's just a fundamental point about liberty and human flourishing and why it's so important for us to be free to pursue things by our own judgment where we can define what we want and we can control how to pursue it. And then if we want to help others, uh, then we can work to do that depending on what they want to pursue. But the idea that it's a right that's enforced by the government, that necessarily leads the government to define these things in very perverse ways, and it leads them to control us in very perverse ways. You guys have anything you want to add on that one? Uh, Just one thing, which is, I think it's important to see that what's happening is that a lot of the decisions are being made in the basis of fear and uncertainty. And what you know, we advocate in energy and what you talk about also in the broader conception of human flourishing is our need for a framework for decision-making, a framework that helps us make decisions about what will best promote human flourishing. And so without that framework, I think you could you could easily imagine seeing us swing back and forth between, you know, isolation, uh, indefinite universal isolation, and then, you know, all right, people get frustrated and so we'll just go back to life, but that doesn't quite work out because we get overwhelmed like Italy. You could you could see all sorts of scenarios happening and nobody would know what would happen the next week and it could be very paralyzing. And what a framework would allow you to do is you would still have fear and uncertainty, but you would have a decision-making process that would give you as much certainty as possible in that kind of context and let you make the best decisions possible to navigate through it. And that's you know, I think that's sort of what we should be aiming for first and foremost is a framework so that we're not making these arbitrary, unpredictable decisions. And note that there's almost no interest from, I mean, certainly from government in this and and no recognition of the havoc that it's wreaking in, in, in terms of not having a framework and not having a policy. And it, it what happens is it, it defaults towards something that is often indefensible. So right now, universal, indefinite universal isolation, that's defaulting toward the only goal is slowing transmission of the virus. And and I'd highly recommend listening to particularly the first 15 or 20 minutes of my interview with Euron Brook, where we really challenge that goal in some depth. But that is, that is not a pro-human flourishing goal to say we're going to reduce the transmission of a virus at all costs. And the thing I keep emphasizing on that show, and I'll emphasize a little bit here, is that the fundamental need of life, of survival, it, let alone everything else, is production. And so you cannot just impede in haphazardly people's ability to produce and many people's ability to produce as well as to enjoy life depends on close social interaction and just it's so many people's productive ability is being compromised and then there's this whole dimension that well okay now we're just going to give them welfare and different handouts and stuff and we can get into the justice angle of that but in terms of production that's not making people more productive. That's you're still diminishing the productive ability across the board. And it and it very much resembles what we talk about in energy, where the lower cost energy is, the lower cost, which ultimately means the less human time it takes to produce any value. And you can think of it as the more freedom of social interaction you have, the more you can the more different kinds of value you can create and the more value of any kind 
you can create. So there are all sorts of values that come from or that are connected to social interaction. And so just to to universally promote isolation indefinitely, that is just so catastrophic to our ability to produce and flourish. And the idea is, oh, well, we'll send you some bills and then that'll make it right. Like that's going to be like if you get a government, whatever they want to call it, like dividend, that's going to make up for you. Your restaurant can no longer work or your events business can no longer work. That is not that is, you know, a huge, huge blow. And I just wish that the people commenting on the threats involved with the virus, I really wish that they acknowledged the threats involved in isolating people. And if they did that, I would trust their recommendations much more. And it's, it's quite analogous, actually, to certain climate scientists who just don't acknowledge any benefit to the energy use that comes with CO2 emissions. And then you have, if they don't do that, you have every reason to think they're exaggerating any negatives of the CO2 emissions. Because if you ignore the benefits of something, even the obvious benefits of something, you're it's very likely that you are exaggerating the negative side effects. Next idea, climate change obsession or climate change fixation prevented us from paying attention to real threats like coronavirus. So when this crisis started emerging, I remembered I was uh, as part of a chapter, and I think chapter 10 in the new moral case for fossil fuels, I'd been writing about this kind of idea. And so I talked about, here's a, here's a quote, now it might change in the final version, but I talked about climate myopia, which may better be called climate fixation. So here's a quote, climate myopia, wherein we we treat stopping climate change as the most important issue, causes us to ignore far more pressing concerns and will surely blind us to unknown ones going forward. And then I have later, finally, as a culture, we need to end climate change as an obsession. For one, human empowerment needs to be a positive priority. And then I have some more on that. But then I have, there are many other real concerns that we almost that we are almost completely ignoring because we think that a couple degrees of change in the average temperatures around the globe is somehow going to prevent us from sustaining and enjoying our lives. And then I, I talk about, specifically I talked about antibiotic resistance, so the, the phenomenon of uh, bacteria that can go against antibiotics, but it's very closely related to viruses and it's just it's just the fact that you cannot focus on everything and if your whole if the whole society and the whole culture is fixated on climate that that is going to take their focus off other things and there's a really good interview with a guy I know named Amish Adalja who's an expert on infectious diseases he did it with Sam Harris and if you l listen to the end of the interview maybe the last 10 or 20 minutes, he talks about just how people in that community have been warning for years that we are ill-prepared for different kinds of pandemics, and yet that gets no attention, whereas or it used to get no attention. So what happens is it gets no attention until it needs attention, and then it gets a huge amount of attention, but we're ill-prepared. So what needs to happen is we need to be thinking about things from a human flourishing perspective and really be aware of and encourage people to be aware of a wide spectrum of threats to human flourishing, as well as a wide spectrum of opportunities, and not have this fixation on one thing. You guys have any thoughts on that? Well, so, I mean, one objection or one relevant claim that I've heard from climate catastrophists is kind of goes in the other direction, where their argument is, 
well, look, here's a case where people predicted catastrophe and they were right. And so, you know, that implies that we should be believed and listen to the catastrophists on climate. Now, uh, I'll be interested in your response to that, Alex, but just one point that I'd like to point out is, I mean, it's not even clear that the, you know, COVID-19, certainly the people who are saying that we needed to make preparations for a pandemic, I think have been proven right. But if we're talking about the kind of catastrophic claims that basically say, you know, 50 you know million people are going to die or whatever, those clearly those have not yet been confirmed. Um, but the, I think there is at least people making the parallel in the other direction. So what do you, what's your take on that? Well, one thing is the only positive I can see with all of this, I guess maybe one positive is we become more rationally prepared for pandemic type issues. Cause that, that's, that is a category of thing that has long scared me. I mean, infinitely more than changes in climate conditions, just the idea. And, and I just think of it because changes in climate conditions, are not they're not purposeful threats they're inadvertent threats that is it's the you know the storm doesn't care about us it's not trying to hurt us but with these different kinds of viruses and bacteria they're actually engineered they're evolved to they don't have an animus against us but they they survive at our expense they're trying to survive and replicate and that comes at our expense so i'm i'm particularly afraid of natural threats that are purposeful, uh, deliberate uh, threats. So th that's just one thing is more focus on those, I think, is is very warranted. So I, I would like to see that. But the, the only positive I, I can really think of besides that is that this is going to be a really, how this plays out will be a really interesting illustration of how how good different people's thinking methodology is and how our knowledge system works. And I'll be very interested. And, and I, I want to encourage people, whatever you've written on this, don't delete it, like let it stand. And I'm going to do it the same. And if I'm proven wrong about something and it could, and I've, I've posted a bunch on just my personal Facebook, which is, it's usually I'm posting it as, Hey, here's an idea. I'm not sure about this. So I haven't posted much that's definitive, but even there, I want to see, Hey, where was I off and where was I right? Cause I'm, I'm, I am suspicious of these doomsday scenarios. There's a lot that doesn't add up for me about them. And there's a really good article by, I can't pronounce, I don't know his name, his pronunciation, but John Iodinus, this Stanford guy, which we can link to, but he has some stuff just about how we don't know anything about the data. But I'm, I'm very skeptical of like these infinite accelerating doomsday type scenarios, but I'm really interested to, interested to see how that pans out. And it's, it's unlike the climate issue where it's a much longer term prediction and people are always changing their standards. So even when they predict millions or hundreds of millions of deaths due to climate and then it doesn't happen, then they can say, oh, well, but ice melted and that's really the problem. So there are these long term, there's this long term issue and then this ambiguity issue. Whereas with this you know, number of deaths by this will be a pretty good measure. And it'll be really interesting to see how people's methodologies Look now, it'll it, people will have different interpretations, I'm sure. And if there's not a pan, if there if it's not a catastrophe, people will say, "Oh, it's only because we did these measures." But I still think it'll be pretty easy to tease out who was thinking uh, properly about it and who wasn't. And then in terms of the the climate catastrophist, well, I, I mean, if people were to have a view, I mean, if I had a view that 
there's no such thing as a potential catastrophe, then they could claim vindication. But the whole point about criticizing climate catastrophism is the evidence is that there's not a catastrophe here. And in fact, overall, our our safety from climate is something that's improving, in, which I've talked about a bunch, including because we have low cost energy from fossil fuels that allows us to climate to build like a more and more climate proof environment. So I'm I mean, the fact that somebody is right about one catastrophe does not mean that everybody is right about every catastrophe. I mean, the people who claim the, you know, Mayan apocalypse, they're not vindicated because somebody would be uh, right about this. Although, I mean, I would say that if if they are, if if the mainstream really gets this right, then they should be proud of themselves. But I don't think they're in any way getting the policy right because they're just not paying attention to uh, the negatives of it. Of of what their policies are, but it'll be really interesting if they're very wrong. So I I treat it as now people can consider this self serving, but I I think if there's a catastrophe, that just means there's a catastrophe, and if there's I, I guess it would be interesting if all the climate the people who are skeptical of climate catastrophe if all of them said oh this is this is baseless and then it was a catastrophe, then that would point out something about at least their at least the people who did that methodology. Whereas mine is more, I'm pointing out, hey, the the policies you're proposing are definitely catastrophic and you're not acknowledging that. And I am not at all. I have almost no expert. I mean, I have no expertise on the science of the viruses, but I do have expertise on the science of human flourishing and what um, indefinite social, what indefinite universal isolation does to it. So Next. I've, I've oh, go ahead point to add to that because yeah, I, I think the policy the difference between policy and some like vague scenario uh, is really important it's not like we didn't spend billions and billions and billions of dollars into the healthcare uh, system and uh, agencies like the CDC um, but what did we get from this right so we cannot ramp testing we cannot ramp hospital beds at least not fast enough we cannot like at least in Germany, I know we don't have the capacity to isolate even like uh, elderly care homes, which would be important because it's a risk group. Uh, and so you could say, well, yeah, we should have prepared for this. But if the government makes all the wrong policies and wrong decisions, this doesn't help at all. So what would have been possible, you know, what, what would have been possible with that amount of money if we would have known ahead what kind of viruses would have been, like what would have been an effective uh, measure to take, like that the testing is really important and how to ramp that up and so on. So it's like in the analogy with the climate, uh, like even if a doomsday scenario would be real, like people could say, yeah, we were right about that. Yeah, but have had have you been right about the policies? Because so what would have happened if we could have impoverished ourselves in the energy system like since 1990s you know what was prescribed where would we be you know by the end of the 21st century uh in, in a much poorer economy much less prepared to something like sea level rise or extreme weather events and so on so that's a different question it's it's not like people can feel vindicated by vaguely saying well something's going, going to happen like you you need to be very precise and they make 
sort of a range of predictions that in itself is contradictory. Like it's a big difference whether we get uh, like three degrees of, of warming or six degrees of warming by the end of the century and, you know, certain amounts of sea level and so on. And, and so it's, it's not like you can say, um, well, ex just trust the expert. Which expert, you know, to what degree, what is he actually saying in, in terms of the range of possibilities, what's the reasoning and so on. And then translating into policies, that's even more complex. Yeah, so I, I think of a lot of that as like their policy prescriptions have not been vindicated uh, at all. And the, I mean, and the policy prescriptions here have a bunch of overlap with their policy prescriptions, whereas they, you know, one, it's ignoring the benefits of low cost energy and the other, it's it's ignoring the benefits of, I mean, really people being free, but in particular people being free to associate with one another in person, or you can think of it as freedom to socially interact. So in that case, there is a, a very negative parallel. Okay, this connects to the next idea. Idea number three, a Green New Deal would be fatal in the fight against coronavirus. Or I can think of this as a Green New Deal would be coronavirus's best friend. So observe that whatever you know, the many, many problems we've seen in our healthcare system that are connected that, that are connected to coronavirus, we there we are bringing to bear they're kind of two big things that we're noticing with that, that that not we're noticing, but that one can notice. And so I'd put them in the category of we're using a lot of machines to improve our lives, and then we're using a lot of manpower and in particular mental power in the form of the medical industry. And both of these are made possible by low-cost, reliable fossil fuel energy. So in the case of the machines, you can think about the hospital equipment, ventilators, factories that are scaling up to produce vital products, uh, all the transportation machines that are, that are bringing products where they're needed. All of these are being powered by low-cost, reliable energy, overwhelmingly from fossil fuels. And then uh, another point that's a little more subtle but but very important is that when is that if you think about the manpower that's available in terms of the number of people in the medical field who can and then you can even put more people in the medical field if if necessary Presu if, i mean there are regulations that can get in the way of this but you know you can you can mobilize a lot of people to help with this issue if needed that's only possible because of low cost fossil fuel machine power that enables us to do the very basics of our survival, like grow our food and, and uh, get water and shelter and clothing, allows us to do those uh, with very few people, very low cost, very little human time. So we have a lot of time freed up to do other things. In societies where they lack low cost machine power, they're spending most of their time on manual labor for the basics. And there's not only do they lack the machines, but they lack the manpower and the mental power to to use those machines and to otherwise help people through the medical industry. So in both of these, I think of it really as, oh, the fossil fuel industry, by producing by far the lowest cost energy for most people, for billions of people around the world and hundreds of millions of people in the U.S., they're really unsung heroes of this effort. And then that relates to the Green New Deal, because the Green New Deal says we should rapidly outlaw fossil fuels and nuclear, which is almost 90% of our energy and use almost 100% solar and wind. And 
not to be too repetitive with what I've talked about before, but solar and wind are they're unreliable energy. I don't call them renewables. I call them unreliables. So no modern country is getting even 25% of their total energy from solar and wind. And there's one big... So just an example that, that sticks with me, that's been sticking with me during this crisis is like last year, Australia experienced a blackout when the solar panels stopped working. Because, and it was a nine-hour blackout because of an unexpected cloud. And you just think of they were expecting a certain amount of sunshine, but they had this big cloud and it stopped. And I've really been thinking, do we want our ventilators and factories to stop working when there are unexpected uh, clouds? And really, like the more we try to rely on unreliables, the less margin there is for error. And you're going to have crises. I mean, you're going to have times when you need a lot of electricity, and you are not getting it. And I just, we should really think about in these life and death issues, it is really life and death that the power be always available in the quantity that we need it. And that is not something you do with anything resembling 100% renewable. Nobody has any clue about that. But even as you try to approach that, you're getting in huge trouble. And then the other thing is that it's not only that it it decreases the reliability of the power the more you try to use it, but it also dramatically increases the cost because when you have unreliable energy, it, it needs 100% backup from reliable energy. So then you need unreliable infrastructure plus reliable infrastructure, which is always more expensive than just reliable infrastructure. And so that adds cost. And then that means that for all kinds of purposes, it it's more expensive. And if you think hospital something like 50% of their costs are electricity-based. Uh, and so you just think about already the strain that's put on medical care, and then just think about what is it like if energy is three, four times more expensive uh, like it is in, in Germany, where Stefan lives. So you guys have any thoughts on this issue? What, you know, what would it be like to fight coronavirus under a Green New Deal? I mean, well, this isn't exactly to that point, but I think it's worth connecting this to the point you made earlier about healthcare, which is we have had a new deal in healthcare. Um, if you think about the Green New Deals, essentially, let's put the government in control of our energy decisions. We've put the government in control of our healthcare decisions, and it has caused, it has contributed to our current problems. And I mean, you can just take something like certificate of need laws, which in order to build a hospital or or have certain kinds of healthcare machines, you actually have to get approval from the government that there's a a need for this, not that you can do it profitably or that you can use it, but basically it allows your competitors to come in and say, no, we don't think that there needs to be a new uh, hospital in our neighborhood. And I'm not necessarily saying that that particular regulation is causally important in in this case, but it's that you've put the government in control of something and therefore you've taken away our ability of free individuals to adapt to something. And the, but the Green New Deal, I think is much worse because I think, you know, the way that uh, government control over healthcare is exercised, I don't think is fully on a human flourishing standard. Um, it's more on a non-standard, whereas the Green New Deal is explicitly getting rid of the most pro-human sources of energy. Stefan, any comments? Yeah, I think if you want to compare that to something like uh, the sort of lockdown right now, uh, a lockdown has to be limited in some capacity at least. Um, so some essential workers like water supply, food supply, and so on have to go on, otherwise we would all die, right? So the lockdown has to be limited. It will it will be damaging, 
but it has to be limited in some form. So, but a Green New Deal threatens essentially the underlying energy supply. So in a best case scenario, it will make it much more expensive, but it will somehow technically work. You know, given the proposals, I don't think that's true, but it it is it is essentially unlimited and unending damage to the economy. It will go on for generations, you know, if you keep that policy going, because you are taking away sort of the best energy source option in, you know, most applications and forces us to replace them with something inferior. And this, you know, makes it more expensive. What, what does it mean? It means we don't have many of the options that we have right now. So it will impoverish us. At least it will make us much poorer. So this will be much harder to fight anything, but to do anything. And fighting Corona will certainly be more, more problematic in a poor economy. And, you know, this is again an analogy to the uh, climate policies. You know, the question is, do you do more harm with certain policies that will make you poorer and, and you know, have less access to resources and so on uh, compared to what you're preventing? You know, just from a purely utilitarian uh, calculation. So this this connects to very strongly to idea four, which is that the Corona recession is a mild preview of the Green New Deal. One way to think about what's going on is that your ability to be productive is being restricted by indefinite universal isolation. It's a, it's it's a fundamental restriction on the ability of millions of people to be productive because social interaction is so crucial to the the kind of value that they create. It's certainly true with some of the stuff we do, like speaking in at events. I think we create a lot of value by speaking at live events, but if there are no live events with speakers, then we can't create that kind of value. And there are certain kinds of consulting that work much better in person and so to some extent, at least we're restricted in creating that kind of value. And then you think of people in service industries, and then it's just totally gutted. So, And that that's really what, it's the lack of productive ability or the decline in productive ability that's so devastating because somebody then, to, to, to consume value, you need to produce value. So you need to produce value so that you can have a home to live in. But if you can't produce value, then you can get kicked out of your home and then be in much more danger, by the way, from coronavirus or anything else. Or you, you know, if you don't have, if you don't create enough value, then you can't have food or you can't have as high quality food and you can't have as high quality clothing. And then there's the whole issue of, of medical care and then all sorts of expenses to enjoy your life. So just as the corona crackdown is this, this indefinite universal isolation is making us less productive. As Stefan mentioned, there's somewhat of a temporary dimension to this. Whereas if you if you permanently and fundamentally gut our energy economy, you know, our ability to produce energy, if you force us to produce energy using processes that are far, far more costly, then that means that every instance of machine power is more costly. And that means that fewer people can afford it. And and you can think of a couple of instances of this. There's got three main ways in which low-cost energy benefits you and then where higher-cost energy harms you. So the most direct is the most obvious, although 
we don't we're not even taught to think of this, but it's just any direct use of machines that you have. So you can think of you know you're using your computer, and that includes using energy on the cloud, which is often much greater than your computer. But you know, using your washing machine, using your vacuum cleaner, using your lights, using your automobile, heating your home, cooling your home, like all of these are you know direct uses of machines. And so when the cost of those go up then the affordability of them goes down. And certain of them, if you're on any kind of normal budget, you have to do without them. But it's not just the direct uses of energy. It's the indirect uses of energy, which is number two, which is, so that is not the not the machine power you're directly using, but the machine power that goes into everything you're using, including the machines, but including the non-machines. So if I take the home that I live in, all of this was produced by machine power, and that made it a lot lower cost because it took a lot less human time than if it hadn't been produced using machine power. And so that that would mean I couldn't afford as nice a home and I couldn't have the furniture and I couldn't have uh, the carpet. And all, all of these things would just be far higher cost. So everything, it's not just everything that uses machine power that becomes more expensive, but it's that everything that is produced using machine power becomes more expensive. And then related to that, number three is that the lower cost machine power is the lower cost everything is. And that ultimately means the more time you have that's free to do what you choose with. And that's just a huge thing where the more, so the more machine power we have, the lower cost it is, the more we the the less of a manual labor life that we have to live and the more we can do other things, including, as I mentioned earlier, engage in medical care. And then there are all sorts of recreational activities and you can you can choose jobs that you want to have uh, that don't involve a lot of manual labor, but they involve a lot of mental labor. So the whole the whole freeing up of human time depends on low cost, reliable energy, which is overwhelmingly, you know, which nothing is still close to fossil fuels in providing. So something like a Green New Deal, by making energy far less reliable and far higher cost, what it means is that all of your direct uses of machines become more expensive, but really everything that you do becomes more expensive, uh, which means that you and everyone else have less time uh, in you, you, everyone is doing more manual labor, which means that they can be less productive and have less time to enjoy themselves. And this is what you see in, in poor countries where what's going on? They're not using much machine power themselves. Not much machine power is going into producing the things they use. And guess what? Huge amounts of their time are, are spent on the basics like food, water, you know, even the crudest shelter. And you see this whenever you have a productivity decline, these are the dynamics. You can produce less and you're more manual labor. So if you take like Venezuela, what's happening, there are a bunch of different dynamics, but ultimately people are becoming less productive. So their lives get worse and they're more of manual labor lives. And so that happens when you increase the cost of energy and it happens when you decrease the freedom to socially interact. All of these are fundamental attacks on our productive ability and thus their fundamental attacks on our ability to flourish. If, if if you're suffering right now, then, and you feel like, wow, I cannot do as much either because I can't afford as much or even I'm not allowed to do it, really think about, okay, this is a regression and this is exactly the kind of regression that the Green New Deal would get us by forcing us to use unreliable, high-cost energy.
Anything you guys want to add about this? Yeah, I mean, one point to make is, so I think some of the advocates of the Green New Deal and the environmental movement more broadly, it's not just that their policies have these consequences, it's that it's part of the goal. So, I mean, but they'll often put it as, we're for a no growth economy and that they'll equate that with a sustainable economy. But I think part of the preview of the Green New Deal that we get here is that there is no such thing as a stagnating no growth economy. You have progress or you have regress and regress happens very quickly and can get very bad because of just the way the nature of an economy works. Um, you 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 can't slow it down like it's you know like a train or something like that it's all the pieces need to be working together and moving forward or you know it's it's more like sticking a wrench in the gears of a clock and so that's what i think should be really terrifying about the green new deals that it, you're not talking about lower growth or even no growth with people just living the same lifestyle that they are this year for 20 years. It's that you get decline and that I think you can get it very, very fast. And one thing there is just, this is a, there's more, a lot more to say about this, but the, the basic assumption behind growth is illusory or it's unsustainable. At least one of the basic assumptions is, well, the, the world has finite resources and therefore they were just inevitably heading toward a train wreck. And one point I make and I'll make now is just that the ability, you know, resources are uh, potentially unlimited because resources are, we create resources by intelligently reshaping raw matter and energy. And the world is just an, an effectively unlimited amount of raw matter and energy. So the, the there's no limit to how much we can grow and we should hope and expect that future generations will see us, even the wealthier ones among us, as quite poor. All right. That is today's show. I hope you enjoyed the big ideas on the show. And so there's the, you know, number one was that the policy of indefinite universal isolation is immoral and un-American. Number two is that climate change fixation prevented us from paying attention to real threats like coronavirus or COVID-19. Point three was that a Green New Deal would be fatal in the fight against coronavirus. And then four is that the corona recession is a mild preview of the Green New Deal. Hope you enjoyed this show. If you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Also, if you are interested in a speaking engagement, maybe a virtual engagement, since people aren't doing a lot of in-person stuff now, or you're interested in help with your messaging, if you're an organization, you can email us about speaking or consulting. Email don at industrialprogress.net. Make sure you're on my mailing list, which is to get weekly updates about this show and about lots of other stuff at alexepsteinlist.com. And for good measure, follow me on Twitter. I've been posting a lot there lately. There's a lot of stuff going on. Twitter is really interesting these days, I find, because it's it's really interesting to see how people I agree with and disagree with, or particularly people I agree with, how they're thinking of COVID-19. Sometimes that challenges my thinking. Sometimes it challenges my positive estimate of the person's thinking uh in general. So that's I that's just a side note, but that I found that really interesting. But if you want to know what I am thinking about and recommending, that can be a good place. Thanks to Don and Stefan for being 
with me. We'll be back next week with an, with another set of great topics. Hope you enjoyed this one. Until next week, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.